Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Good morning. If you're just joining us, my name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so excited that you decided to join us for Church Online at the Grove, especially this Sunday, because we're starting a new sermon series called Rules of Engagement. And it feels pretty appropriately timed, because I don't know about you, but 2020 feels like it's given us a lot to talk about. So much to talk about. So many serious things that are showing up in our lives. And they feel so serious because there's also an absence of lighter things. Do you remember when your Facebook feed used to be full of news from the Rangers or uploaded vacation photos from other people? We don't have any distractions or diffusers in our conversation anymore. So suddenly, we're at the pool or we're with our family at dinner, and instead of someone bringing up what the Cowboys' next trade is or their kids' experience at summer camp, someone instead says something like, well, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? Or what's your response to Governor Abnett's reopening of Texas? And everyone freezes, and everyone gets tense. These conversations make us really deeply uncomfortable. One of the reasons I think this is, is that for years, we've been told that we don't talk about things, certain things, in mixed company. In polite conversation, there are just some topics that we avoid. And so for some of us, for 20 or 30 or 50 years, we've abided by that rule. We don't have difficult conversations in mixed company. And sometimes, we don't have difficult conversations at all. That condition, in addition to the reality that technology over the last 10 years has completely transformed the way we talk to each other, it, it's made us really bad at conversation. So we're suddenly here in 2020, forced to talk to each other about pretty important and serious things, and we're realizing that we're not that great at it, that our dialogue skills are lacking. We are way out of practice. And we could do what we've always done and hold our tongues and avoid the conversation, but I think the gift of 2020, what we're also recognizing is the not talking isn't serving us very well. We look around us and we recognize that By avoiding the conversations, we're not actually making anything better. Things aren't changing like we thought they would if we just were polite and didn't talk about things and stayed on our phones. They're not changing. And worse than that, we look around and we see this divisiveness and division. And over this year, I don't know about you, but as I watch the news and I read articles, I recognize that it's not just the national conversation that's broken down. It's trickled down into our families. We're now, when we're trying to decide how to react and how to respond to COVID, even our family conversations are difficult. 
So that's what we're going to talk about here in this sermon series. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about one misstep that we do when we try to have hard conversations, and then we're going to offer one rule, one rule that we can start to follow as followers of Jesus of how to re-engage in these conversations. Some advice as we look to scripture of what Jesus points out is how we have healthy dialogue with those we disagree with and those we love. So this week, we're focusing on the first misstep. Here's what I think happens first. We prepare for hard conversations with the wrong goal in mind. Let me say that again. We prepare for hard conversations with the wrong goal in mind. So listen to these scenarios. And I want you to try to envision what do you think the goal is in this conversation. So the first one. Your cousin is on Facebook, and she's an avid Facebook user. And over the last few months, man, she's been posting and posting and posting all of these political and opinionated articles, and you wholeheartedly disagree not just with the articles, but with the sources themselves. And every time you look at it, you just kind of cringe and roll your eyes, and it's infuriating to watch her put out this content. You start to wonder, how are we even related? How are we even living in the same world? But you knew that 4th of July was coming up, and you were going to see her. So you thought the best approach was, all right, I'm just going to up my Facebook game. And you started posting counter-articles about her sources, hoping she would see them in her feed. And then you read said articles, and you started to highlight and note the statistics, and started to put all those statistics in your memory so you could bring them out at a certain point at this barbecue. And you show up at the barbecue, and sure enough, she brings up something about the news, something that you disagree with, and you let it out. You let out all those statistics you've been memorizing. You let out all those articles. You're defensive. You're there. You're fighting, essentially, debating with her. And you get to a point in the argument where you recognize, like, tension is really high and emotion is really high. And she throws up her hands and walks away. And you think, hmm, that, was that a good conversation? What happened there? And you leave that barbecue unsure of how that relationship stands. Or maybe, maybe it's your friend. You see, you've been planning your best friend's 60th birthday party for months, way before COVID started. And COVID started and you started to wonder if you should reschedule, but it's supposed to be in August. And so you thought for sure by August, everything would be okay. Everything would be fine. And so now it's July, though, and you're starting to notice the spike in cases here in Texas. You're starting to wonder about the implications, and you start to get a little uncomfortable. You're not sure if it's responsible to invite 100 people to a gathering. Your best friend blows it off and says, no, 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 don't worry. Everyone can wear masks. It's okay. But you start to feel anxious. And over time, you start dropping hints to her and text messages, sending her news headlines as well, maybe venting to your other friends or venting to your spouse about how irresponsible this feels. 
And then finally, in one of your planning sessions, your best friend brings up that, oh, yeah, yeah, I invited my mother, my elderly mother, and you hit the roof. You start pulling out personal vendettas. You've never cared about anyone. You are not thinking about your mom. How could you put her at risk? Blech. All the frustration from the last couple months just comes out in this conversation. You don't know how it ends. You just leave because you're so frustrated and so angry and feel like she's so in the wrong. Or maybe it's with your brother. You and your brother have always taken your families on vacation in a house in Corpus Christi. That is what you've done every single summer. And every single summer, you drop off your daughter on the way to Corpus Christi to camp. That's just how it works. And so as you are planning the summer, your brother is all on board for the Corpus Christi vacation. He feels comfortable with it. But then you bring up the fact that you'll be sending your daughter to camp, per usual. A few days go by, nothing seems out of the ordinary, and then you get an email from your brother that says, hey, me and my wife, we, we don't feel comfortable going on vacation with you guys unless your daughter doesn't go to camp or she quarantines for 14 days. Ugh, you are so mad, you're so mad. Like, doesn't he trust you to make that decision? You've checked with the camp, you've researched the guidelines, you've researched what they're doing, you've made sure that it's the safest possible option for your daughter. And your brother's email, oh, it just, it gets at you because it's trying to say that something that you're doing is wrong. And so in a fit of rage, you wait a few days and then you send out a snark, send back a snarky email that says, fine, we'll go on vacation at Hyatt Hill Country. Each of those scenarios has a common goal in mind, even if it's not immediately obvious. You see, what each of those people were trying to do in those situations is to win. They did it in different ways. One of them used facts and statistics. The other used personal vengeance. The other used some type of passive-aggressive energy, but ultimately, what they were doing is trying to convince the other person to their side. They walked into that conversation believing that they were right, the other per person was wrong, and it was their sole goal to defeat that other person and either fix them by bringing them over to their side or defeat them entirely. That's how we walk into conversations most of the time. Our goal is to win. And by and large, it's not totally our fault. We're raised this way. Think about the first 10 minutes of kindergarten. You learn immediately that if you want to get the teacher's attention, you better have the right answer. We need to be right. We need to win. We have to be the best. That's how we feel secure and safe. It's an ancient human impulse. It traces back thousands and thousands of years, and there are stories and stories that speak to this. So it isn't super surprising that in the Bible, in Scripture, Jesus addresses this very thing. We find it in Luke. It's a pretty famous conversation where the disciples, all of his friends, have learned that Jesus 
will soon be leaving them. They're scared. They feel unsafe. And so they start to argue, and the word is contentious dispute. They start to have this contentious dispute about who is the greatest. They all wanted to win. They all wanted to be the best. And they literally started to have an argument about who was the best. You can imagine that they brought out all sorts of ammunition. They brought out the intellectual arguments. They brought out the moral arguments. They probably brought out some passive-aggressive personal arguments in there as well. They started to argue about who was the greatest, the best, the winner of the Jesus Disciple Prize. And Jesus' response, I think, is so interesting. Jesus, in this version of the story, says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Meaning, the kings of the Gentiles, Gentiles were everyone who wasn't Jewish, so it's the world, the outside world. They're kings, the ones who have power, the winners of the Gentile society, they hold that power over everyone else who isn't in power. And then he continues and he says, and those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. So the benefactors was a Roman title that was given as a way of showing who had honored the government. And so that title, like kings, when we call those people the winners, what we mean is that they're exercising authority, that they're holding power over people, that their goal is to win. They are the winners. You see, what Jesus is saying is that, look, the world tells you that the goal of your life is to win. That the state of this world is that there are winners and losers and you better be on the side of the winners. That's how you need to make your whole life so that you can and will win. But Jesus says, but that's not the way it will be with you, my friends. You, you people who want to follow Jesus, who want to follow God, it won't be that way with you. You're going to have to let go of winning. It's a really bad strategy, Jesus says. It doesn't work. Look at you arguing and being contentious with each other. It severs relationships. It creates divisiveness. Winning is not worth it. And that brings us to our first rule. A rule I think that Jesus sums up here. He says, we, the rule is, walk into the room, not the ring. Walk into the room, and not the ring. You see, a ring, a boxing ring, it has a predetermined purpose. When you see those ropes and you see that mat, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to climb through the ropes and you're supposed to defeat the person who's inside. That's what you have to do. And that determines how you prepare. Sure, there's physical preparation too, right? There's, you have to practice moves and get stronger and all this stuff, but there's also mental preparation. Do you think that Muhammad Ali, when he was fighting Joe Frazier, walked into the ring and prepared himself by thinking about how much him and Joe Frazier had in common? No, he did not. He 
he thought about him as an enemy, as an opponent, as someone who needed to be defeated. That's the purpose of a ring. I am there to win, and therefore I cannot humanize you, I cannot think of you in a soft way. You are my enemy, and my goal is to defeat you and be the winner. In our conversations, we do this too. We prepare in different ways, but we prepare pretty similar, as if we're walking into a ring because that's how we view most of our conversations. So we sit there gathering articles, gathering like headlines and statistics that we can use in our next conversation. And maybe we gather emotional ammunition too, so we gather all these resentments and past things and moral judgments that this person has done. And maybe scariest of all is that as we gather this stuff, as we gather all, all our ammunition to enter into the ring, we also start to get a little bit angry at the person we're talking to. We start to view them as an opponent, even if they're our sister or our brother or our cousin or our mom or our friend. We, in our heads, start to dehumanize them because that's what a ring does. If your goal is to win, there can only be winners and there can only be losers. And that means for you, you have to start to dehumanize the person who you're fighting against. This is the strategy that Jesus calls out to his disciples. He looks at them and says, do you see what this does? What winning does to you? It divides you. It creates shallow relationships. When you enter into conversation and dialogue, when you enter into relationship with the goal of winning, you're only going to do more harm. We can't solve the world's problems or make this place a better place or even form relationships if our goal is to win. And luckily Jesus says, look, I have a new way. I have a new way of doing this. And so he continues, he says, instead, the greatest among you must become like a person of lower status. So which of one of you is greater? The one seated at the table or the one who serves at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I'm gonna be honest, when we first read that, it can feel a little wah wah. Serving? That's what you want me to do, Jesus? You want me to translate the goal of winning to the goal of serving? What does that even mean in conversation when I have valid ideas, when I'm someone who believes something strongly? You see, for most of us, when we think of service or serving, we think about suspending our own interest in honor of someone else's. It feels really passive and almost demeaning in some way. But I think what Jesus is doing here is proposing not necessarily a goal, but a strategy that serving others can be our way forward. Let me give you an example. So in preparation for this series, I've read a lot of books and articles um, about how to have difficult conversations. And you wouldn't believe how many of those authors happen to be hostage negotiators. There's a ton out there. So I was reading an article the other day by a hostage negotiator, and here's what I found really interesting. Someone asked him, like, 
should you have a goal when you go into conversation? He said, yeah, you should. And your goal is to help the other person feel bonded to you. And it's a really confusing answer, so he, con he continues and he says, look, your goal in a conversation, in a difficult conversation with someone that you disagree with, is to make them feel heard. Because when you make them feel heard, it releases that oxytocin in their brain that makes them feel bonded or trusting of you. And his argument was that, look, you can't even have a decent, fruitful, productive conversation if you don't have that original bond. If you don't make the relationship a priority, if you don't try to make space for that person, to make them feel heard and listened to, to repeat back what they're saying over and over again, to really empathize with them, then there's really no point in having a difficult conversation. I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying here too. Let's go back to that original rule. The original rule was walk into the room and not a ring. Walk into a room and not a ring. Let's think about rooms real quick. I want you to think about actual rooms that this stuff is happening in. It's your living room that you're having these conversations or your backyard patio or your front porch or your kitchen. It's around your kitchen island at your dining table and your kid's bedroom. This is where these conversations are happening. And so what's the difference between a room and a ring? Well, first of all, a room presumes a relationship. There has to be shared space. That's why you're there, right? You don't have random people in your living room. It's people that you're in relationship with. And then secondly, there isn't a presumed goal. And certainly winning isn't the goal. We've all been part of those conversations in living rooms or kitchens, around kitchen tables, in a backyard barbecue where someone starts arguing and the other person feels defeated and walks off. And it feels so uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's because winning isn't supposed to happen in the home. That type of relationship, that type of fight, it isn't made for living rooms and kitchens, for patios and dining rooms. And thirdly, the difference between a room and a ring is that rooms are meant to deepen relationships, not divide. You see, rooms prioritize relationships. They make room for relationship. That's what Jesus is saying when he tells them about serving. I think it's really interesting, and I don't know if you noticed it, but the language that he uses to describe service is the table. So which one of you is greater, the one seated at the table or the one who serves at the table? The table this analogy for gathering together, for sharing thought, for sharing bonds, for deepening relationships. That's what service looks like for Jesus in this context. And have you ever thought about what it means to serve at a table? What does it mean when you're offering food to someone? What does it mean when you're setting the table? 
What does it mean when you're gathering up the chairs to make sure there's enough for other people? Yes, this is service, but I think a better word for us might be hospitality. You see, I think that Jesus is offering us this strategy of service as a way of saying, look, you need to treat conversation and dialogue just like you would if you were hosting a dinner party. You need to be the host of that conversation. And yes, as the host, your primary responsibility is making sure that the needs of the person who is eating with you are met. You make them comfortable, you bring them water, you make sure they have their choice of what they want. You make them feel safe so that you can continue to have a difficult conversation with them. It's a brilliant strategy, really, because it lays the groundwork of how we can actually share thought together. So what would it look like for us if we treated these difficult conversations that we're stumbling into in 2020 as hosts, as people who are hosting a conversation where we set the framework and the boundaries, where we serve the needs of those that we're talking to in order to get to a more significant, meaningful place. I want to leave you with a practical tool because I know that so many of you are already having these conversations, you're already frustrated by these conversations, and some of us are feeling a little bit hopeless about these conversations. So I think one of the first ways that we can start to act like host in conversation is by preparing well, by literally setting the framework well, right? And I think one thing that we get off, which we talked about earlier in this, in this sermon, is that the misstep we make is that we have the wrong goal in mind. I think there's a chance for us to define the goal before we even enter into the conversation, to really give thought about what we actually want in the conversation. So Crucial Conversations, which is a great book published a while back, a lot of you have read it, suggest that you prepare for hard conversations with these three questions. What do I want for myself? What do I want for others? And what do I want for this relationship? I think those are really valid questions. And I kind of think of it as if we're setting a table, right? Like these are the questions that we need to answer in full in order to prepare for that conversation. But I'm gonna add a fourth too, because I think as followers of Jesus, there is, there is even a deeper question here. And that question is, as best as I can discern, what does God want in this situation? As best as I can discern, what does God want in this situation? Those questions are the way forward of you trying to host difficult conversations, a way to prepare for them before you even enter the room. I think our conversations would be a lot different if we all started asking, what does it mean for, be, for me to be the host of this conversation? What does it mean for me to clarify a goal that's different than winning? What does it mean for me to move forward and try to create meaning in this space instead of just animosity? I'm gonna pray over us 
in a second. And I'm going to pray over specifically the conversations that I know you're having now and you'll continue to have this week and the next week and the next. Because I believe in your capacity through the Holy Spirit to rise above that natural impulse to win and to instead take on an attitude of service, not as a way of sacrificing your power, but as a way of serving those and making space for those who just want to be heard. Will you pray with me? Holy Lord, who is good, who gives us skills, who gives us the ability to speak, who gives us the ability to live together. Lord, sometimes that ability to live together feels really contentious and strained. And so many of us are feeling that not just in our nation, but in our families as well. Lord, I pray that you may give us the courage, that you may give us the courage to move forward in these conversations, to know that holding our tongue doesn't serve us anymore, that we have to press on to this uncomfortable territory because it is only in that space that we are able to make better collective decisions about how we need to move forward and what needs to change. Lord, give us the energy and the calmness and the control to be able to be host of our own conversations, to serve others in a way that allows them to feel safe and heard and in a way that lifts up your name. We thank you for our capacity to do this. We thank you that we are in relationship with you, that we have resources that we can pull from. And we're thankful, first and foremost, that we are your children. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this first week of the sermon series. We're so excited you're here. Next week, we'll share another rule about how we can engage with those around us, how we can engage better in difficult conversations. We'll hope you'll join us. Every week at the church, we say the same blessing over each other. And it's a blessing to go forward into the world because the church is not this building and it isn't this service. It's you all having those conversations in your life. That's what faith looked like. That's what being a follower of Jesus looks like right now in this day and age. So as we say this blessing over each other, I hope that you will feel the Spirit filling you up to have those conversations with the people that you love and the people you disagree with. Let's say it together. May the peace of Christ go with us wherever he may send us. May he guide us through the wilderness and protect us through the storm. May our lives be used to share the love that Christ has shown us. And may he gather us together once again into these doors. Happy Sunday, y'all. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org. 